Welcome to the Pinocchio Project. I'm your host, Mitch Friedman. Ideas have consequences, and every day you're exposed to ideas that promise human flourishing. Our mission here on the Pinocchio Project is to equip you to examine these everyday ideas so that you can determine for yourself whether or not they deliver on their promises. Welcome to the Pinocchio Project. This is your host, Mitch Friedman, joined by Jeff Olson, broadcasting from beautiful and cooler Lago Vista, Texas. Love lakeside living when it cools off a bit. Today, I want to talk about what I would call lullabies and sovereignty. Lullabies and sovereignty. Uh, you may be thinking, I hope you are, because I try to construct titles like this. What in the world is he talking about? And hopefully in the next few minutes, I will clarify what I'm talking about. Here at the Pinocchio Project, we say that ideas have consequences. Uh, good ideas about human flourishing bring human flourishing. Bad ideas about human flourishing when lived out bring human suffering and degrading. And one of the bad ideas that's developed in our culture over the past uh, several decades, I think, is the idea that somehow the state, uh, meaning the government, is our primary source of flourishing and uh, even salvation from the standpoint of what can be done to fix the things that are wrong. Uh, the state as savior or the state as remedy. And when that happens, the state is more than willing to magnetize all power and resource unto themselves in order to, I would say, anesthetize the populace and say whatever's necessary, uh, because in the fallen world, power corrupts and often uh, corrupts absolutely. Uh, but what we find over the course of the last several decades, particularly, is our, our increasing dependence, at least in our minds, and our willing to cede uh, remedy for what's wrong to the government. And this came to me, it really kind of ambushed me in a, a workshop that my wife and I were doing uh, a couple of weeks ago locally here. Uh, the workshop, it was for a, a local church and another church joined in. We, we called the workshop Life in a Post-Row World, referring to the uh, Dobbs decision back in June, which threw the question of abortion legalities back to the states which was the thing that SCOTA should have done. And we all know that there's a, a, a slew, if you will, a firestorm, if you will, a litany, if you will, of crazy prevarications, mendacities, and misinformation coming uh, about the, the consequences of uh, sending the question back to the states. I'm not really going to uh, emphasize those uh, too much in this episode. Uh, it's probably good stuff for the next uh, few weeks, so maybe we'll, we'll touch on them. But what I want to do uh, here for a few minutes is talk about uh, my own experience with being put to sleep by the same messaging over just the course of the past couple of decades in my life, uh, where I have been uh, lulled to sleep, if you will, uh, by the, um, the siren song of government remedy or government salvation. Uh, Sherry and I, my wife and I, did this uh, workshop. We conducted it together. I took the first hour and was... Uh, mainly philosophical about how we got here, how ideas for the last couple or 300 years uh, now embedded in culture in the higher institutions uh, and the slow crawl through uh, the academy. The ideas have now become accepted behaviors and unquestioned behaviors. 
And uh, my wife uh, took the second hour and, and got really a lot more practical and personal, uh, which is her wheelhouse. And uh, at the end of our time together, we had about 30 minutes of Q&A and a, a man in the, uh, in the room who was a participant in the workshop asked a question about uh, what priority uh, should our pro-life position take in, in the form of, of remedy. And it was obvious that the post-row workshop was about abortion, uh, but he had other questions about uh, other marginalized people. And I would say... Uh, that the most marginalized you can be is if you're denied life. Uh, he had some questions about uh, immigration and uh, uh, single mothers and, you know, really good, really good uh, uh, sourced and compassion ideas about uh, what pro-life uh, policy should look like or what pro-life living should look like. It should include those things. It should include end-of-life issues. And uh, I agreed with all that. Uh, and we talked about that in the room. We, we traded some conversation with several other participants in the workshop. Uh, but what I realized uh, afterwards was uh, when he, the same man, sent me an email, and we, we started an email dialogue, which I always appreciate, I realized that in his uh, messaging to me and my return messaging, that we had been seduced uh, both of us, uh, by this this siren song or this lullaby of the state, whereby what the state was going to do and what policies the state was going to enact or legislate uh, were the top priority of my own life uh, as a Christian. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely backwards. Uh, but again, it's just been such an insidious, uh, embedded message for so long that I think many of us just default uh, to policies and, and politics. Now, again, don't get me wrong. We have to not be those in the mushy middle, which was an episode of a couple of weeks ago. We have to take, take part in the flourishing of the polis or the city-state. We have to be concerned with the city-state's uh, economy and, and religious life and, and, and how you take care of the marginalized. We have to, we have to be concerned there. Uh, but our concern must run deeper than our activity must run deeper than simply haggling about uh, policymakers and candidates and parties. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a, uh, a final email that he uh, sent me after we talked a little bit about uh, what it means to do stewardship well, what it means to understand my responsibilities. And uh, so this is his final email to me. Uh, this is him talking back to me after two or three email exchanges. Mitch, I would say that we are in agreement with our concern and actions of biblical behavior towards the marginalized. And I also believe in the practice of whole life stewardship. However, what I am saying is that it is very hard, more like impossible, to practice whole life stewardship when one of the biggest actions is voting. So, Right here is when I began to realize that I was not just responding to him. I was actually feeding this vision that whole life stewardship has as one of its primary, if not the primary responsibilities, voting. And he continues, let me give you a primary example. And we're in Texas here, so these names may not. Well, you're probably in Texas if you're listening. Are people mostly in Texas that consume the Pinocchio Project? All right. 
so you'll probably understand. When we vote for governor, he goes on, in November, we have two choices. A vote for Abbott is a vote for the unborn. That's a good thing. Yet, it is packaged with what I consider bad things in my version of being pro-life. He has been much harsher towards immigrants and, in my opinion, his views seem unbiblical. And he's, I mean, everybody has a, a, a right to their own uh, opinion engine. He, that's Abbott, will not bend on gun control in the slightest and, in fact, made guns more accessible. I believe also that Texas is dead last in terms of health care access and insurance, and this was largely due to his decisions on not expanding Medicaid. He is not concerned with global warming, and that is likely to be the number one killer in the years to come. Now, all of these propositions that he's making are subject to inquiry, scientific and otherwise. But even the one thing that I would be in agreement with about his policies, abortion, seems to be carried out in an uncaring way. Neighbors can sue one another if they aid in any way. Doctors still do not know what they can legally do when the mother is in danger. Now, some of these things, again, need to be uh, investigated, these claims. They need to be straightened out. A lot of this uh, that he's saying uh, could be indicative of consuming the prevarications, the mendacities, and the misinformation that's out there. But that's, that's not my point. We, you see so far that we were talking about whole life stewardship and the entire discussion of a single believer's stewardship responsibility is contained in how the, the legislature, how the state is, is acting either in a way that is appropriate to our understanding of stewardship or inappropriately. So we are now projecting our responsibilities on the state, and he is uh, rightfully experiencing what I would call relational heartburn with the state because he can't find a way that the state satisfies his needs as far as how to do stewardship. And now he goes to the, the candidate from the Blue Party, from Abbott to Beto. A vote for Beto goes against my views on abortion, but every other aspect is a win for the marginalized. So therein lies the dilemma, I guess. It really is impossible to practice the whole life stewardship idea when it comes to voting for governor as well as for certain other offices. So this is a big statement. It's impossible for an individual believer, he says, to practice whole life stewardship when, it, when the weight of how policy is made and the state comes to the rescue is so confusing. And this is where, this is where he ends. He says, by the same token, I have, I have a similar dilemma about abortion and marginalized people. I can vote for someone who I feel has the policies most aligned with biblical practices on a variety of issues, yet who will push for more abortion access. It is a bummer either way. So this is, a, this is really an exchange that ends in sort of a, a resigned despair about what it means to be a proponent of life, of help for the marginalized, and what it means to practice whole life stewardship as a Christian. Uh, he closes with, this is a bummer either way. And what, what he's saying is, you know, if I choose red, there's going to be bad news. If I choose blue, there's going to be bad news. And I don't know if you're, you know, I know as I say these things, I don't know if, if you're, if, if I'm being a, a help in, in pointing out the, the default or the impulse we, we've 
grown into is that the government's going to fix everything that is, is needed. They're going to remedy our problems. And uh, even if we do have an impulse to vote, it's still not, not a vote that we can be confident is going to be satisfying. Uh, but I recognize in, in my own responses that, that fed his responses back is that I've, I've been seduced at some level as well. Again, we have to vote for candidates that best uphold biblical values as believers. That, that's our responsibility. But our responsibility is so much deeper and wider and potent as believers than simply the scrutiny of religious candidates. Now, that's important, but it's by no means the most important. We've, we've become seduced by the siren call of the state as Savior. And this is how, this is how, uh, this is how verse 1 of the siren song of the state goes. We'll right the wrongs, we'll sing the songs of young and old in strife. So just relax, remit your tax, will ensure your favored life. There's probably more verses, but that's the only one I wrote. <laughs> Jeff's, Jeff's waiting for another verse, or he's waiting for me to stop singing. I can't tell. We'll right the wrongs. We'll sing the songs of young and old in strife. So just relax and remit your tax. We'll ensure your favored life. More and more, we are being drawn into this false construct of what it means to experience life in a, a free state, still free, and our responsibility as Christians with the freedoms we've been given to actually be the workforce of remedy and salvation. I want to talk just for a minute about uh, the erosion of what I would call uh, decentralized institutions that actually are responsible in the culture have been responsible for many years since the founding of our experiment in ordered liberty called the United States. Uh, I, I, I kind of titled this, this part of the conversation, uh, grieving the loss of subsidiarity. Subsidiarity is an organizing principle that important matters of culture should be handled by the smallest, lowest, or least centralized competent authority. And so if you look at how God provided this, this principle of subsidiarity and health and flourishing in culture, the, the smallest, lowest, or least centralized competent authority should be the individual who has a vision for their personal responsibility. And then from individual, there's family. And then from family, there's church. And if you look throughout the early history of our country, you see these things in play. And then from church are civic organizations like the Boys and Girls Clubs, like Salvation Army. And then you see finally the, the, the most centralized authority, the most distant from the individual is the state. And yet what, what we have seen over the past several decades is an erosion of, of the, the what I we would call uh, sustaining authorities in the middle between the individual and the state. We've seen the erosion of the family, uh, the, the now the decertification as the church as a competent voice in flourishing culture. We've seen a, a through scandals and other means, the decertification of civic organizations. And we have seen an increase of the state gaining power 
and continuing to sing the song of remedy. And so subsidiarity is an important principle in understanding uh, where we were and what we've lost and how the siren song of the state becomes so loud and clear and compelling. Uh, I don't know if you if you know Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, a Frenchman who came and visited the United States. You should check it out. I'm, I don't have time to uh, rehearse everything that he observed in our our culture and how these these institutions and individuals provided what what was the strength of the culture between the individual and the state. Uh, but he basically said, "America is great because America is good." And when he meant what he meant by good was we we have we have sustaining middle institutions that provide the weight of taking care of the marginalized that neither one individual nor the entire state has to be responsible for. We have family, we have church, we have civic organizations, but those have waxed and now waned over the course of the past several decades. We need to get that back, and we need to remember our own individual responsibility. Uh, so I'm singing an, an old or new song, a new old song now, and I want to talk about sphere sovereignty just for a second. Uh, this is a, a concept of, of creating health and flourishing in culture that's not dependent on the state, uh, that forms these, uh, these institutional authorities in the middle between the individual and the state. And it's even the individual's responsibility. Uh, this is a Kuyperian, uh, Abraham Kuyper, uh, you, you can research him, maybe we can tag him in the show notes. Uh, he was a strong believer, a, a Dutch man, and he, he created this understanding biblically of sphere sovereignty. And sphere sovereignty goes like this. Every believer has biblical authority, opportunity, and responsibility in at least one primary decentralized sphere of influence. Now, that could be my, my responsibility to Jeff. It could be responsibility to my wife, my family, my other close friends, my church, uh, people who I want to engage in that I have friendships with and I want to introduce them to the gospel. It could be the, the marginalized people that I have direct Im impact and influence in and me using my responsibilities to help them. It's not my virtue signaling by, by railing against the state and, and recognizing the validity of another candidate while tearing down the, the opponent candidate. That, that, that's just virtue signaling. It makes, me, it makes me look like I have the best interest of the people around me in mind, but I actually have sphere sovereignty where I'm responsible for the flourishing of the people around me. And when I fulfill those responsibilities, flourishing advances, not because of the state riding in and salvation coming out the door of Air Force One, but Mitch realizing the authority he has as a biblical Christ follower and being willing to sacrifice for the benefit of those people in my sphere that I have a sovereignty over and a responsibility to help them flourish. So let's refuse the lullaby of the state and gain again a vision for our responsibility as those with sphere sovereignty. Just think about who's in your sphere that you can help flourish with all the resources at your disposal. And I promise you, you will be more satisfied than you're railing against the political realm and flourishing in your sphere will advance. For The Pinocchio Project, Mitch Friedman, signing off. 
Thanks so much for being with us on the Pinocchio Project today. If this podcast has value for you, please subscribe or follow. Give us a five-star rating and share. If you have an everyday idea you'd like to submit for us to examine, simply email us at pinocchioprojectpod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at pinocchiopod, or you can hit the links in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening. And remember, your everyday ideas have significant consequences.